If you want a deeper relationship with God, then learn to trust His promises. The Promise Code by O.S. Hawkins will help you understand how to count on God's promises. And it's yours with a gift of any amount to Turning Point this month. When you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Promise Code set, which includes Esther's CD album, study guide, historical chart, and Bible promises at a glance booklet. Learn more and donate when you go to davidjeremiah.ca. Whether on a cosmic scale or on a more intimate level, the power of God to change what seems to be unchangeable is nothing short of astonishing. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah turns his attention to a vivid example of this power to change as it is revealed in the story of Esther and her people, the Jews. To introduce the conclusion of his message, Undoing the Undoable, here's David. Well, thank you for joining us for part two of this lesson. We're finding out that God moved into a situation that looked like it was set in stone, and he turned it around. Maybe you have a situation like that you're facing. Maybe right now you wonder how anything can be better than it is because it all seems like it's irreversible. But God does not have that word in his vocabulary. So let me encourage you and listen carefully as we unfold the rest of this story in just a moment. You know, during this month, we're making available a very special resource Uh, It's by O.S. Hawkins. It's called The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim, plus Bible Promises at a Glance Booklet. Uh, This 224-page hardcover gift book is really a beautiful product. Each entry in the book contains a Bible promise and a reading that illuminates that promise, a prayer that will stay with you throughout your week, and a code verse to memorize. It's yours for a gift of any amount to Turning Point. When you ask for this resource, we'll send it to you right away. Friends, there are no books like this. O.S. Hawkins has a corner on the code books, and these books are very, uh, they're very good. Uh, They add value to your life. I'm so happy that we get to offer them and make them available to our worldwide radio audience. Ask for your copy when you send your gift today. We have it ready to ship to you. It'll be in your home before you know it. Okay, right now we go back to part two of Undoing the Undoable from Esther, chapter 8. Open your Bibles, open your study guide. Let's begin. Now, if you're studying this book with any kind of sense of timing, let me just remind you that the first decree went forth on the 13th day of the first month, April 17th, if you use the chronology that I have followed. Two months and ten days had gone by, giving plenty of time for the Jews to experience the anguish of their impending doom. I mean, this thing had been in process now for two months and a few days, and the Jews knew they were under the sentence of death, and so they felt the pain of wondering when the axe would fall. And that the second decree is issued, and this decree now needs to be sent out. And some have wondered why it seems to take so long to get this process going. If you study the timing of it, it isn't something that immediately happens. And of course, the answer to that is it didn't have to immediately happen because there was still enough time left before the decree to kill the Jews would be executed. And so within that period of time, all that Esther and Mordecai had to do was get the new decree out to all the provinces. And since it was so important, it was a life and death matter. They wanted to make absolutely certain that they did it right, and so they wrote it up properly. And it's interesting, if you have a chance, take the old decree, the decree of death, and the new decree, the decree of life, 
and lay them down beside each other and notice how similar they are and how exact they are. And the wording is very similar to the first decree which is found back in the third chapter. Now in verses 10 through 14, we find the release of the ruling which liberates the Jews. Notice verse 10. And he wrote in the king Ahasuerus' name and sealed it with the king's ring and sent letters by posts on horseback and riders on mules, camels, and young dromedaries, wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause to perish all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely, upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adair, the copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all the people, and that the Jews should be ready against that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So the posts that rode upon mules and camels went out, being hastened and pressed on by the king's commandment, and the decree was given at Shushan the palace." So the decree now is being circulated throughout all of Persia. The death sentence has been lifted, and watch this. Not only has the sentence of death been lifted, but the Jews have been given permission to avenge themselves against any who would come to attack them. And there's some very interesting things in this section. They had to have plenty advance notice so that they could prepare. They had to get together. They had to get organized because now they had just been fugitives. They had known nothing of organizing to avenge themselves. They thought only of their own lives. And so now they're giving an offense. They're given an opportunity to retaliate, and they're told that they will be supported in their opportunity to avenge those who come after them. I have to tell you that there have been some that I have read in the study of the book of Esther who have a great deal of difficulty with the fact that Mordecai is writing a decree which says that the Jewish people can kill those who come against them, including the women and the children. That sounds very, very unlike a loving God, so they say. But please read the text carefully. Notice verse 11, how carefully this is written, and I want to make a point about this in just a moment. The king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together, to stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause to perish all the power of the people and province. Now watch this. Here it is. That would, what's this? Assault them, both little ones and women, and to take spoil of them for a prey. You know, if you study Jewish history, you will discover that that has been throughout the Jews' history the way they have been involved in warfare. They have not been an aggressive people that have gone out to assault others except when they were under the command of the Lord, such as in the settling of the land of Canaan. But the verse doesn't say that the Jewish people were given a carte blanche to go out into the community in Persia and just find anyone and assault them and kill the babies and kill the women. No, the decree is that if they come against you, you can defend yourself against them and you can do whatever is needed to be done to make sure that they don't take your life and they don't come after you again. I remember when we were studying during the Persian Gulf War, the Israel connection. I told you 
that in the subsequent discussions after the Persian Gulf War, when everybody's talking about a settlement for peace in the Middle East, that there's going to be a lot of rhetoric about Israel giving up the land which she has gotten. And if you listen to the liberal commentators, you'd get the impression that Israel has just looked around their borders and gone after this land when they noticed that there was a weakness among their neighbors and they have accessed all of this territory to which they have no right. And I remember telling you that that is not the truth. That the actual situation is that the land Israel has which is in dispute is land which she has taken in the process of being attacked from that very soil. For instance, the Golan Heights. And of course, this was the territory that the Syrians used for sniper and rocket attacks on the Israeli settlements down below. In the Yom Kippur War of 1973, while the Egyptians were attacking across the Sinai, the Syrians poured over the Golan and down into Israel with thousands of tanks. And the Israelis were caught by surprise and with only a small fraction of the tanks and men drove the Syrians back over the top of the Golan Heights and the Egyptians back to the Suez Canal and they gained control of the Golan Heights and they said it's not ever going to happen to us again. We're going to keep this property so they can't get up above us and shoot down on us. And they took back that property. Do you think Israel's going to invite their enemies to come and camp over the top of them and shoot down on them? Listen, they didn't aggressively go after the Golan Heights, but when the Golan Heights were a part of an attack upon them, they avenged themselves against their enemies and did what needed to be done to protect themselves against all aggressors. And I could give you the rest of the history, but you know it. In every situation where territory in the Middle East today is in dispute, that disputed territory was not taken aggressively by Israel. It was taken in self-defense, exactly as we are reading in the book of Esther. Avenge yourself on your enemies. God gave them the permission to do that. As you come to the end of the eighth chapter, what you discover is that the Jews have now been given permission to live. At the end of the 11th verse, they have what they need to go out and preserve their nation against all attack. Shouldn't surprise you as you come to the end of the chapter number five to see the return of God's joy as the spirit of the Jews. You know, the Jews sometimes look like uh, sorrowful people. They've been through a lot of pain and anguish. They have experienced a great deal of persecution throughout their years. But when you get Jewish people together in their faith, rejoicing in their God, they are happy people. Some of my best memories in visiting Israel were seeing some of the Jewish festival things that we saw when we were there. And I've seen many of them on television, as I know you have. The Jewish people, when they are free from oppression, are a happy people. And I wish I could have been there when they were released from captivity out of Babylon. But this must have been almost as joyous a day. Read with me what it says, beginning at the 15th verse. And Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, and with a great, literally it should be a great turban, not a crown in a royal sense of the word, but a great turban of gold and with a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, 
The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a good day, and many of the people of the land became Jews, for the fear of the Jews fell upon them. Did you ever know that was there? Did you know that there was a conversion to Judaism at the end of this situation? I mean, when they saw how God worked on behalf of the Jews, they were signing up at every temple they could find. They were becoming Jews. They didn't look like Jews. They looked like Persians, but it was a lot safer to be a Jew in that day. And so there was a mighty conversion to Judaism. Well, it's interesting as you read this to discover that this time of rejoicing was a time when many things happened. Many among the peoples of the land became Jews, says the scripture. And you know what? I noticed in studying this chapter that the verb translated became Jews only is found one time in the Old Testament. It's right here. In fact, there's very little evidence in the Old Testament of Gentiles becoming Jews. When you get to the New Testament, all oh, you see some of that in the book of Acts. Many thousands of Gentiles in the book of Acts attached themselves to the Jewish synagogues in the Roman Empire. And of course, it wasn't because of the dread of the Jews, which we read about here in the eighth chapter, that they became Jews, but it was because, as one writer has said, the vast many of the people who became Jews recognized the superiority of the Jewish religion and their lifestyle to all of the corruption and the emptiness in their paganism. And so as they saw the lifestyle of these godly Jewish people, they were attracted to them. And they came to the synagogues and Paul preached to them Jesus. And many of them were converted having been proselyted Jews. If you go back through the Bible, you see here and there isolated illustrations of individuals from other cultures coming into Judaism. Remember Ruth the Moabite? And Rahab the Canaanite? And Uriah the Hittite? All of them became Jews because of the experiences they'd had with God's people. But here on this day, there was a mass conversion. One Jewish commentator that I read says, that when the Jews saw the miracle of their deliverance, they accepted the Torah, Genesis to Deuteronomy, with great enthusiasm. And seeing this, the Gentiles in Shushan gained new respect for the Torah and its teaching, and they converted to Judaism as well. I think you would call this something of an Old Testament revival because of what God did to deliver his people. Now remember how dark it looked at the beginning? <laughs> I just want to give you three things to think about from this passage of Scripture because... I really believe there's some marvelous lessons for us to learn. First of all, I've already alluded to this one. Number one, this chapter illustrates the power of God to reverse the irreversible. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I'm called to the hospital, and they tell me there's no hope. Well, I'm reminded that while it is true that from all human experience and from medical scientific involvement you can say of a person there's no hope but you know the only one who can say there's no hope is the God of hope and I have seen God reverse the irreversible have you you know one of the things you always hold out to people at least in my estimation as long as you can you hold out the hope of an almighty God who can turn things around. Some of you here in a situation, you think, Pastor Jeremiah, you talk about something being irreversible. I'm in the midst of it. There is no way to turn this baby around. Well, there may not be a way, but there's a God in heaven who can do it. 
And when I read the book of Esther, it just fires up my encouragement. It reminds me that when things look so bleak that you're just about ready to write the obituary, God rises up from the ash heap of your misdirected hopes and he reverses the irreversible. That's what God does. When I read this chapter, I see not only an illustration of the power of God to reverse the irreversible. I don't know if you noticed it as we were going through, and I don't want to spiritualize this story, but I don't want to miss this either. This story illustrates the power of the gospel to overrule the power of sin. You know, there are two decrees in this book. There's the decree of death, and there's the decree of life. And as you read the Bible and as you study what we know about Christianity, one of the things you learn as you follow along in the reading and the study of the Word of God is that God has a way to save sinners. You can't go to heaven by your own good works. You can't ever be good enough to go to heaven. The Bible says you must be born again. And the reason you must be born again is because there is a decree that has been written. And you know what that decree is? The decree is, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Decree that has been written over all mankind is that no one can go to heaven with his sin. My friend, if that was the only decree there ever was, we would be just as hopeless as was Esther and Mordecai and the Jews before God began to work in their lives. And God can't do anything about that decree. He can't reverse it. You know what? The soul that sinneth, it shall die, is the same in our generation as it's ever been, and it's never going to change. The soul that sinneth, it will die. You violate God the day you're born into this human family because of your own sin that you inherited from your heritage. And as soon as you're born into this human race, you begin to sin because sin is a part of the original decree. <laughs> well, let me tell you some good news. Just as the original decree in Persia was overruled by another decree, God has given us another decree. And that decree is that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Isn't that a thrilling thought? Here's the decree of sin. No one will ever be able to change that. You can't fix yourself up good enough. You can't beat that decree. You can't change it. But over here, God has given us a new one. God has said, if you put your trust in my son, the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for your sin, if you believe in him, you'll be saved. When the people of Israel murmured against God, he sent serpents among them. And those little slithery things began to bite the Israelites, and every time they were bitten, they began to die. And you know, God didn't come into the camp and say, now I'm going to change my mind about that. I'm going to make it so that now, from now on, the serpents, when they bite, it won't be the sting of death. He didn't do that. He'd already declared the decree of death. The serpents were the illustration of the decree of death. You know what God did? He raised up a pole, and he put a serpent on that pole, and he said, here's decree number two, look and live. And if you look at that pole representing salvation, then the sting of sin will be overruled. And I read this story, and I realize that redemption's everywhere in the Bible. It's there in precept, and it's there in picture. It's there in illustration. 
there in teaching. And this story from the Old Testament illustrates the power of the gospel to overrule the power of sin. And finally, this chapter in the book of Esther illustrates the plan of God to reach the world. Isn't it interesting, verse 14, when the decree of life was finally written, watch this, and the couriers hastened and impelled by the king's command went out riding on the royal steeds and the decree was given out in Susa, the capital. (laughs) What a tremendous illustration of what happens when you have a decree of life friends and everybody in the whole Persian Empire thinks they're under the decree of death what are you gonna do you get the fastest horses you can find and that's what this text says and you put people on those horses and you give them the decree of life and you send them out as fast as you can everywhere to tell everyone the decree of death has been overruled and now there's a decree of life that's what a missionary does that's what we're supposed to do You know what the problem is? We don't fully understand that the whole world is lost and on its way to hell. We don't really believe that. If we believed that, we'd get the fastest horse we could find. We'd get on that horse and we'd ride up and down the streets and all through the neighborhoods and we'd be saying, listen, there's a new decree that overrules the old one. This is the decree of life. Look and live. When I read this, I realized how we lose the sense of urgency in our lives as believers. How easy it is for us to get caught up in the humdrum of just trying to meet one crisis after another. Takes so much time just to to be alive, doesn't it? And yet there's an urgent, urgent message that needs to be circulated. I wonder what it would have been like to have been appointed one of the couriers given the fastest horse, I guess the Persian horses were something, and given a destination to which to go, and a scroll under your arm, and off you rode into the night to tell people that the curse of death has been overruled. And I wonder what it would have been like to have been a Jew, to have one of these couriers come up to you and say, You don't have to worry about that date out yonder, that date of judgment. Because God in his omnipotence has worked out a plan whereby you now can live. I'm sure they received it with joy. We saw an evidence of that in the text, didn't we? The greatest opportunity we ever have, men and women, is to go as the messengers of Jesus Christ and tell folks that there's a law that has been put on the books that overrules the law that most of them are being judged by. Let's find the fastest horse we can find and go tell them. Amen? Amen. Well, you know, there's redemption in every part of the Bible and illustrations of salvation and rescue in most of the stories. And this is certainly no exception. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to uh, talk about the extermination of enemies. What happened to those people who tried to do evil to the Jewish people? God dealt with them. And uh, we will uh, read about that tomorrow and on Monday. And then uh, we continue with our discussion on Tuesday and Wednesday with uh, the Feast of Purim, the ninth chapter of the book of Esther, which will conclude our study in this Old Testament book. 
So friends, we keep telling you about these things because we don't want you to miss them. I need to remind you that if you're planning to go to Alaska with us, this is the fastest registration for an Alaska cruise we've ever had in our history. Um, the people at Inspiration Cruise who handle this for us tell us they've never seen anything like it. Obviously, people want to go somewhere. They're tired of being pent up and told no, and so they're coming in droves to sign up for this cruise. It will probably be one of the largest Alaska cruises we've ever done. And I don't want you to miss it because it's very special. This year, we have a unique approach, uh, especially for the men and uh, and for the young guys who come. James Brown and Tony Dungy from CBS Sports will be with us for the week, and they're going to share some things in a, uh, a talk with my son Daniel from the NFL Network. It will be a great week with a lot of music and just a wonderful time together. But I am telling you, you need to make your reservation. The Alaska cruise is surely not going to be available to the end of the registration period. So we're we're looking forward to having a great time together in Alaska. Then before we get there, we'll be in Boise, Idaho on April the 20th at the Extra Mile Arena. Already tickets are being made available. We have uh, a bunch of people who've already got their tickets for this event in April. And we're sending out information every day. More and more people are... Uh, registering. It's not a huge metropolitan area, so if you're part of our team, part of our listening audience, plan to be with us, and we'll see you tomorrow. Today's message came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church, where Dr. David Jeremiah serves as senior pastor. To give us an update on how God is using this ministry, write to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of the latest book from O.S. Hawkins, The Promise Code, 40 Bible Promises Every Believer Should Claim. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app to instantly access our content or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue Esther for such a time as this on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. For more than 40 years, Dr. David Jeremiah has faithfully preached God's Word. And as the world changes, how the message is delivered expands. Turning Point Plus was created as the next step in our digital broadcast ministry. And it's available instantly when you sign up to support Turning Point with an automatic monthly gift of any amount. Learn more and access more than 12,000 audio and video messages at turningpointplus.org. If you're looking to enhance your personal or group Bible study, look no further than the Jeremiah Bible Study Series. In each volume, Dr. David Jeremiah helps you understand what the Bible says and how to apply it. Along the way, you will gain insights into the text, identify key themes, and be challenged to apply the truth found in Scripture to your life. Get your copy today. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca slash study. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash study. In Dr. Billy Graham's book on angels, he tells about the legendary missionary John G. Patton. On a South Pacific island, Patton and his wife were surrounded by a tribe of cannibals. 
They prayed all through the night for protection, and the next morning the natives had left. When the chief of that tribe eventually became a Christian, Patton asked why he had not been attacked that night, and the chief said it was because of the hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords that were protecting Patton's house. The Bible says that angels are sent by God to minister to those who belong to Him. And this is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's angels on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.